and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Ros Taylor. Who rules the waves? Well, for a few minutes on the last night of the proms, it's Britannia, obviously. But the truth is more complicated, probably a lot more complicated than you assumed. Joining me to talk about the claims we've made over the sea and how we could stop imagining it as an infinite resource is Chris Armstrong, Professor of Political Theory at the University of Southampton and author of A Blue New Deal, Why We Need a New Politics for the Ocean. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here. The first person to write about who owned the sea was not actually a Briton. It was a Dutchman in the early 17th century. Tell us about him. Sure. Hugo Grotius was a Dutch lawyer and was called in to carve out a position on a legal dispute that was going on between the Dutch uh, East India Company and the Portuguese because the Dutch East India Company had seized a Portuguese vessel off in the Far East and it had a very valuable cargo of, of musk and silk. Grotius produced a kind of ingenious justification of what looked like an act of piracy, seizing a a vessel belonging to another country. Grotius argued that the Portuguese in what was then called the East Indies had kind of immorally and illicitly interfered with the Dutch state's freedom to trade wherever it wanted. So we get from Grotius a vision of the, the ocean as a space of freedom where anyone ought to be able to sail and maybe more importantly trade wherever they wanted to. But in time, before long, in fact, his ideas were challenged by an Englishman who argued that it was desirable to close off parts of the ocean, enclose them, basically make sure that only people from certain countries could fish in them, could use them, something that we have come to accept as normal today. How did that happen? The English position on whether the sea should be seen as free or not actually moved to and fro, depending on what we thought our political priorities were at the time. But John Selden, in this book, Mare Clausum, or The Closed Sea, was called upon to provide a justification for carving out bits of the ocean as the territory of particular countries, in this case, the territory of Britain. Selden wanted to say that not only could states, but maybe states should carve out portions of the sea as their own distinct marine territories. And then in the 20th century, the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea shaped how the sea would be carved up. Who got what, essentially? So there are several interesting moments or movements within the convention. One of them is the creation of what get called exclusive economic zones, which see states make what you might call a kind of sea grab over 200 nautical miles worth of marine territory. So up to 200 nautical miles from each state, this entity that's now called an exclusive economic zone is the kind of resource preserve of the local state, which can decide whether to fish, which can keep the fish and and minerals to be found there. Beyond the exclusive economic zone, we still have what have historically been called the high seas, which continues to be a space of freedom. And countries can largely fish to their heart's content, or there are some kind of agreements that, that limit fishing of particular fish in particular places. So in effect, there are no limits on what a country that wants to fish in the high seas or wants to exploit them can do. There are no limits that are not in a sense voluntary. If your country wants to sign up to what gets called a regional fisheries management organisation, which might put catch limits on tuna in particular places, let's say, then your vessel will be bound by those rules. But one of the peculiarities about the ocean legally 
is that if you have a fishing vessel, it's relatively cheap and easy to switch flag to another state. So you sail under the, the flag of another country. And you can, of course, pick a country that doesn't belong to the relevant fisheries management organization. And therefore, you're not restricted in your fishing activities. One of the problems you point out with the UN Convention is that it assumes the sea is a resource from which we take things, not something that we can look after, which we can effectively despoil. This is still apparent in the way we think about things like British fishing grounds post-Brexit, isn't it? How does the current narrative about British fish play in to our ideas about the sea? Discussions post-Brexit are absolutely an example of the idea of state enclosure. I think that within debates about Brexit, British people have been kind of very attached to this idea that you know these fishing grounds are our fishing grounds, have historically been so. That's actually historically quite short-sighted because exclusive economic zones don't actually come into effect until 1994. Before that, we actually shared many European fishing grounds with, with other countries, coastal powers in Europe. But certainly in the kind of post-Brexit world, we, we see that strong narrative of these are our fish and we are, in a sense, going to repatriate them. At least that's the, the vision that people who voted for Brexit were sold. Whether it actually has emerged is slightly more complex. You write understandably a lot about fish and whether it is justifiable the way that we do fish and how much we fish. Should those of us who don't really need to eat fish carry on doing it, in your view? I don't think we should. So in the book, I do bring up the animal rights perspective. And I think, roughly speaking, if we can avoid, if we can reasonably avoid killing and eating other species, we ought to do so. I'm absolutely cognizant of the fact that Many people are highly nutritionally dependent on fish, especially in the, the global south, and don't really have that kind of choice. But most of us do. And that's why I don't eat fish. I think it's just not uh, necessary in that sense. So for those of us who are just picking up something, you know, a bit of sushi from the supermarket or just in the habit of eating fish, we should really give that up. It's not justifiable. Which fish in particular are the problem for you? I think there are lots of problems. So we can identify many fish which are in drastically reduced numbers, like tuna, for example. But we can also identify fish where the activity or the techniques of fishing are just very destructive of the marine environment. So especially things like bottom trawling, which you know destroy fragile ecosystems on the seabed, but also we now know cause huge amounts of carbon to be emitted into the atmosphere. But there are some fish that are more sustainable, aren't there? For example, mussels are a lot a lot better, if you're thinking from that point of view, than tuna. Absolutely. Fish farming is not always uh, an ecologically sound activity, but mussel farming looks to be a much better option. Mussel farming is an extremely simple activity. You can simply kind of set up a, a framework and literally hang ropes into the ocean and come back in a year's time and they'll have mussels living on them. So there's no carbon footprint as such. You don't feed them. You don't uh, pour nitrogen or various other pollutants into the ocean. And in fact, mussels actually clean coastal waters. They actually perform some important services for us. You also urge people to consider the rights of the creatures that live in the sea, not just our right to exploit it, which is the traditional legal approach. This is one of the most powerful sections in your book. Tell us 
why some of these creatures deserve explicit rights and which ones you feel are particularly deserving of our attention. So I spend most of the time discussing an easy case to get the, the kind of the moral foot in the door. I discuss whales and dolphins because whales and dolphins, cetaceans, have these incredible capacities. They can sense and experience the world in quite remarkable ways that we can only you know, begin to understand. And they are also highly autonomous. They seem to have a sense of the future. They seem to have a sense of their own identity. They have language. So I think it makes the case that they ought to be accorded rights not too different to ours, to human rights, relatively easy to make. So I discussed, for example, rights of whales and dolphins not to be confined in sea life parks, not to be tortured in medical experiments, and also tortured by many of the things we do on the open ocean, for example, noise pollution, it seems causes a great deal of pain and distress to whales and dolphins to the extent that they, they beach themselves and die as a response to it. And you actually talk about cetaceans having a culture, which would surprise, I think, a lot of people. Tell us a bit more about that and why you would consider them to have a culture. Absolutely. So this is fascinating. So we know that whales and dolphins have language, but they also appear to have what we would call in slightly anthropocentric terms, songs. So humpback whales in particular have certain ways of expressing themselves vocally, as we would put it, that are actually distinctive to particular places on the planet. So when they are near Antarctica, they, as we would put it, sing their songs appropriate to the Antarctic region. And when they come up the east or west coast of Australia, they start to sing different songs. They seem to remember the songs of the previous year. You even witness kind of encounters between different populations within the same species, such as killer whales, which seem to find a way to talk to each other, although they have their own dialects. They first talk in um, their own language and then they find gradually a kind of shared language to communicate with. If we had more access to the ocean in general, apart from you know, the occasional blockbusting documentary by David Attenborough, if we routinely saw the way these creatures live, do you think we would have more respect for their rights? I believe we would, yes. I think sociologically something that's happened over the last century or so, which is really interesting, is that our, our everyday experience of the ocean has diminished. Because it used to be the case before air travel that we relied on the ocean to, to get to the other side of the world. And now we fly. And it used to be that many people were, were employed in coastal industries like fishing, which now employ fewer and fewer people. So our kind of everyday immersion in the ocean, if you like, is diminishing. And I think one consequence of that is that we are less exposed to the fact that the ocean is, first and foremost, a habitat for you know, many and varied forms of biodiversity. And we experience this as a place of tourism increasingly, don't we? Particularly in the, in the West, in the global North, we see it as somewhere to visit. And as you say, not somewhere that our lives, where, that we are actually profoundly dependent on. And you talk a lot about how global warming could, perhaps will be mitigated by the ocean. Tell us a bit more about that. 
We are coming to understand more and more, I think, the, the centrality of the ocean to processes of climate change. I mean, I, I certainly grew up at school being told that the rainforests were the lungs of the world, absorbing carbon and releasing oxygen. Whereas we now know that it's really the ocean that is the lungs of the world. It absorbs the vast majority of carbon that we emit, and it also cycles oxygen. And in particular, we owe a great deal to some of the very small organisms that live in the ocean, like plankton, which perform incredibly important ecosystem roles in stabilizing our, our planet's climate. But although the ocean has absorbed most of the carbon that we've been emitting in recent decades, it has limits. And we are now pressing very hard against those limits. So one thing that happens to the ocean as it absorbs more and more carbon is that it starts to acidify, starts to form carbonic acid, and that threatens to radically disrupt marine food webs. So very small creatures with shells, zooplankton, cannot form those shells and cannot repair those shells in slightly acidic water. And we don't really know what happens to the entire marine food web if those foundations drop out. But our best guess is that the consequences could be really serious. There are relatively few people who actually work and spend their time at sea, but there are some, and they often live quite precarious lives in a kind of legal limbo, which you write about in one chapter. Absolutely. So this was a real eye-opener for me too. People who work in the fishing industry in particular are some of the most vulnerable workers in the entire global economy. And one reason why they are so vulnerable is because they are literally working hundreds of miles from help out there on the open ocean. But another reason why they're vulnerable is because of their distinctive legal position. So they will be sailing on vessels which sail under the flag of one country or another, but all too many of them will be sailing on vessels which are sailing under flags of convenience. The flags of convenience are sold by countries which are happy to receive some foreign revenue for selling their flags, but are not vigilant about the protection of workers on the vessels that sail under their flag. So we really see some horrific forms of abuse in the fishing industry, right from you know, forcing people to work in dangerous conditions, excessive hours, all the way through to, to murdering workers and disposing of their bodies overboard. You also tackle the question of what should happen to people who live in countries that may well be submerged in the next few decades due to rising sea levels. Where realistically are these people going to go? That's a great question. We don't know the answer. Our ideal solution might be that these people can find a new country of their own somewhere else in the world. That doesn't seem particularly likely because apart from Antarctica, all the other land is already occupied. And countries which have land don't seem particularly prone to giving it up. So for that reason, it's worth exploring options in which these people who I call climate exiles in the book, people whose entire countries have been submerged, find a form of refuge and membership in countries, and most fittingly, perhaps countries which have been responsible for the problem of climate change in the first place. But of course, those may not be the countries they actually want to live in. 
for somebody who has lived in a on a Pacific island, they may not particularly want to go and live in America. Yes, and so there we need to get a bit creative. So I think a really important move is to try and preserve the autonomy of climate exiles so that they exert some control over their own future and what that future looks like. So how do we marry, on the one hand, the fact that we think big, wealthy, high-polluting countries should pick up the tab for rehoming climate exiles, and on the other hand, the fact that climate exiles would probably like to move to other small island states with cultures similar to their own. I think the only way to split this Gordian knot is to give islanders as much autonomy, freedom as possible to choose where they want to live, but to argue that countries which are high-emitting, wealthy countries ought to, in a sense, compensate them for their loss of their original homeland, give them resources which they can carry with them wherever they go to, to ease the transition to a new way of life. And you'd normally think of these places having some kind of government in exile, but of course, if the sea level rises, there is no prospect whatsoever of getting their countries back again, is there? I think we should be creative here. They're not going to get the, the land territory of their countries back. They're not going to poke their way above the, the surface of the sea for, at the very least, thousands of years. But it's not obvious to me that their, their countries, their states, need to disappear as legal or political realities. So I ex- try and explore scenarios in which climate exiles retain their initial citizenship, in which their state survives rather than passing out of the historical record. It's interesting to think about exactly what that might mean. What would a state without a land territory look like? And I explore various options. And one of them is that the state in question, even if it doesn't have a land territory anymore, could continue to possess a marine territory. And you make the case, which is the central argument of your book, for a world ocean authority. Tell us about what that would do, how it would work, how it would exert its authority, if you like, and persuade countries to do as much as they reasonably could for the ocean. What I want to argue is that, at least when it comes to the high seas, the bit of the ocean that nobody owns and no particular country has as its own territory, we ought to shift the way we think about the high seas from a place anyone can visit and take with resources from to a hugely important ecosystem habitat that is deserving of protection. So the future that I see for the high seas is something like not a national park, but an international park in a sense, a a preserve for biodiversity with economic activities radically restricted and duties on all of us to collaborate to protect this hugely important marine environment. Are you optimistic about the prospects of doing that? I'm not hugely optimistic. This final chapter of the book is an example of kind of blue sky thinking or blue water thinking, if you like. But I'm even less optimistic about the future for the ocean if we don't engage in some radically innovative thinking. It's clear to me that business as usual in the ocean spells disaster. And I think in that context, we ought to be permitted to imagine what a better future would look like, even if it's not obvious here and now how we might build the political path towards it. 
So bringing it back home, what would this mean for the way Britain manages its waters, as we, we know, our waters as we think of them? Would we have our waters anymore? Would we have to give up our exclusive economic zone and our long-standing attachment to fishing? How would things change? So I consider two options in the book. One is that we give up or reduce in size exclusive economic zones. But I think there are various reasons why that's politically quite unlikely. So I also consider ways in which the institution of exclusive economic zones could be renewed in light of the environmental challenges that we face today. So I think if we are going to retain exclusive economic zones, we need a much firmer set of duties of environmental stewardship. We really ought not to be giving new licenses for the drilling of offshore oil and gas. We really ought to be heavily restricting the activities of industrial fishing outfits, especially when they're engaged in particularly destructive activities like bottom trawling. And Denmark has already given up uh, offshore drilling activities, hasn't it? Absolutely. It has indicated a date, at least, for the, the future end to any more extraction. I think Denmark has suggested it won't extract any more oil after 2050. I think that's leaving things too late. I think we need an earlier date, but it is nevertheless absolutely to be welcomed that one country at least has said there is an end point. There has to be an end point to offshore fossil fuel extraction. Chris Armstrong, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. A Blue New Deal, Why We Need a New Politics for the Ocean is published on 22nd of February by Yale University Press. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you like, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>